0: Mm-hmm. I think this is so nice. I so so ice hope ice it. he continues use this. Like, I hope it's not just so. so nice, but I've been starting my shop with so it. Yeah,
1: I want to go buy it Friday. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. good. okay, ready? <laughs> ready? Okay. So we're recording. Yes. Okay. So we learned that every soul has this quality of chachma, specifically chachma of the highest world called the of batzilus. Okay. And um, the it says that the, um, the ein sof, which is. Um, yeah. It's working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Ein Sof, which is a Kabbalistic term for Hashem, for God, is present in the Chochmah of Atsilas. So if you, that means that in some sense there's the Ein Sof within the soul. Okay, now. <coughs> I want to talk about this idea that, that the Ein Sof, that Hashem is in the Chochmah. Right? Now, there's, there's two aspects to this. One is, what does it mean that Hashem is in the Chachmah? And the other is, what is Chachmah such that that's possible, that that can occur? Okay. Let me explain to you what I mean with a simple analogy. I have a cup of coffee. Right? The coffee is in the cup. So there's two aspects. One is, what does it mean that the coffee is in the cup? Right? It means that this liquid is being held you know, in one place, in a, you know, in a usable way, right? That's what it means the coffee's in the cup. Now, what is it about the cup that allows that is that the cup is, has a cavity, which allows the coffee to be present, but the cup is also um, um, waterproof, or at least, yeah, I think this paper cup is pretty waterproof, right? So that the water doesn't leak out, right? So there's two elements. What do we mean when we say the Ein Sof that Hashem is in the Chochma? That's one question, and then we're going to ignore what Chochma is. And then there's a the second question: What are the characteristics of Chochma that make that possible? Okay. The reason why I'm splitting that up, other than just conceptually, it's important to split it up, is because one of those things, um, the Alter Rebbe and Tanya does not explain, which is what it means that the Ein Sof is in Chochma. Later on, when we turn the page, he will explain what is it about Chachmah that allows the Ein Sof to be there. Okay, so I figure we should do the thing that he doesn't explain so we have some understanding of it, and then we'll just keep learning inside and we'll eventually get to the part where he explains why Chachmah, what is it about Chachmah that allows that to happen. Okay, So remember, right now we're not describing Chachma. Although I might say things that we'll then again use later in the description of Chachmah. The goal is to understand what it means that the Ain Self is in Chachmah. So we have two choices. I could do this quickly and superficially, or I could do it slowly and rigorously. And I have chosen to do it slowly and rigorously. Now, that doesn't mean that it will take the whole class, but it does mean that I want to make sure that we're clear about things. Okay. So, number one.
0: Uh, yeah. Where is the source of not the
1: There's a lot of other chassidus.
0: Really?
1: Yes. The, the, the you know not every I you know, you know there's there's the altar has said I don't know I don't know how many 2,000, 3,000 discourses maybe more. There's a lot of chassidus. So
0: it's kind of state, statement
1: that in so yeah. This is, so what does it mean that, So what does it mean it's in Chachmah? Not so much what is it what is it about Chachmah? Like I'm not getting to why Chachmah is opposed to Chesed or Machos or anything else. Right? that 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 we're not gonna talk about yet. Okay, so let's start off with some basic things. Number one Okay Hashem is not in a specific place. Okay, this is a basic idea. Our our sages tell us. He is the place of the world The world is not his place Hashem is not an entity That fits into some larger context So he's not a physical object He's not an idea He's not an emotional experience He's not anything Because anything Has its parameters And it exists in a certain context In relation to other things Hashem doesn't Not that He is what gives rise to everything else He doesn't fit inside of anything Okay So the obvious thing is to say in any literal sense Hashem is inside something is, a, is, is is just a meaningless statement. It's like saying the third corner of a circle. If you're saying the third corner of a circle you either don't know what a corner is or a circle is. Right? Because the Satan is nonsensical. Now Amen. Hashem has what is called in um kabbalistic language light or revelation and i i, I want to be clear even though i'm being rigorous i'm also going to oversimplify i'm only going to bring up the things that we need to have a a, a mature understanding things that add unnecessary complication i'm not i'm going to leave out okay so hashem has this thing we call his light or his revelation
0: okay.
1: now um how are we to understand that? So we're gonna understand it very, very simply. Let us imagine that we are in a room and the room has no light and there is an object in the room, say a table, okay? You cannot see the table, right? Is there any deficiency in your ability to see that is the explanation of why you can't see the table? No, right? Is the reason you can't see the table because something is obstructing your view of the table? No. If you're in a dark room, there's nothing but there's nothing obstructing. What's an obstruction? For instance, there's now an obstruction on my face, right? You cannot see my face. That's an obstruction. Right? There's nothing that is blocking or preventing you from seeing the table. Is it because the table is absent, right? You obviously can't see something that isn't there. So it's interesting, the table is fully there, you're fully capable of seeing, and there's nothing <laughs> blocking or preventing you from seeing. Okay, so why can't you see the table?
0: Okay,
1: so what I would like us to do is I would like us to ignore the light for a moment. In other words, I want you to not think of the light as a thing. So without using the word light, making reference to you and the table, one or the other, Why can't you see the table? You have an ability to see. The table is there. Nothing is blocking you from seeing the table. So why can't you see the table?
0: There's not something there that, that reveals the table.
1: I want you to not bring in any new entities. I want you not to think of light as a thing. So don't think of light. Just think about you and the table. A table. You don't, but since it's a thought experiment, you do. I mean, you could know if you walk over and bump into it, but in the, in the thought experiment, you only know because it's a thought experiment, right? Or they're used to see the table, and then you have you know make assumptions about reality and stuff like that. But why can't you see the table?
0: Your eyes can't see darkness.
1: Why are you making it about your eyes?
0: Because you don't know it's there.
1: A, it's a thought experiment. Thought is is a word. <laughs>
0: Can we use darkness? Hey, no. no. Why not make it about your eyes?
1: I'm asking you why <laughs> did you make it about your eyes?
0: Because nothing physically has changed.
1: About what? About the state of being. Very good. This is important. Nothing physically has changed, and so you immediately want to make the thing happen with you, and so you have become, and you have just left the ro- world of Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah and Hasidus by doing so, because what you've done is you've made every issue about your own abilities, your own perception, your own processes. There's another way of thinking about this: the table isn't visible. There's a difference between being and being visible. Now, for this thought experiment, I don't care how the table becomes visible. That's not the point. But the table could be visible, could not be visible. Does it change, anyway, the being of the table, whether it's visible or not? Right? The table's there, the same, unchanged, whether it's visible or it's not. But if the table is not visible, you might have perfect vision and you still will not be able to see it. But if the table is visible, then you could see it. Now, if the table's visible and you can't see it, that could be A, because you're not looking at it, or B, your vision is not great, right? Or C, something is blocking, right? But the, the, the idea that I wanna focus on is let's, nothing is blocking it. You are looking at the direction of the table. Your vision works perfectly fine. The reason you can't see it is because the table being in the room is not the same thing as the table being visible. Those are just two different Layers of reality, if you will. Mm. Does that make sense? Now, what is the thing that you introduce in order to make the table becomes visible? Light. Light. So when Kabbalah uses the word light, and therefore Hasidists uses the word light, in these kinds of contexts, should we be thinking about rays of light? Mm. No. We should just simply think about the fact that there is this additional layer of whether or not something is visible or apparent, okay, or revealed. Now obviously, when we're talking about God, I don't mean to say that he's visible in a physical sense you can see with your eyes, right? Good? Okay, so when we say God's light, what does that mean? It's the thing that, what? It's the thing, and I want you not to, it's the thing that makes God what? Visible. Visible, it's the thing that makes God apparent. If. God's light isn't there, is God still there? Yes. Yeah. But will you be able to perceive him? Yeah. No. No. Okay, so now, when you walk down the street, do you just have a natural perception of God's presence? No you do not, I'm sorry to say. Because you might have a sense of all sorts of things and you may attribute them to God. Because we have to be clear what we mean. When you go back to, this, go back to the table, when you see the table, what do you see? You see the table as the table actually is, right? So if the table is green and you're looking at the table and the table's visible, what will you see? You'll see the table as green, right? (laughs) If the table is square, you'll see it as square, right? Okay, here's some truths about God. God is the only thing that is real. God is absolute. Okay, now, I'm going to ask you when you walk down the street, do you have that sense? that God is the only thing that's real, and God is absolute. Because if you did, you probably would not have a lot of the problems you have in life, right? Okay, I, I'll put this in, in slightly different terms. We, we, we pray, yes? I'm sure many of you have heard that Chassidus explains that the Hebrew word tefillah, prayer means to connect, yes? And, therefore, and our sages, when they refer to tefillah, they're referring specifically to the Shemona Esrei, the, the prayers where we bless God, right? It's a question that should bother you. Why is asking for stuff the same thing as connecting to God? So like I have people that I'm related to and that I'm close with. I have friends, I have my wife, I have my children, right? Only my children are young, right? Actually, well, I have some I have children a little bit older, right? So I have a 14-year-old. Right? If I go over and ask him to wash the dishes or take out the trash because like, you know, a lot running a house with a lot of kids. So you ask the older kids to help. Like, it's a reasonable thing. Would you say, like, that's me connecting to him? I mean, me connecting to him is like us schmoozing about his life, maybe learning together, right? Those are more connecting activities, right? Me asking him to help me take out the trash or wash dishes because I can't do everything myself. That's not very much connecting, is it, right? So you're going to connect to Hashem, right? And again, our sages say that tefillah, the prayer, which is connecting, is not all the other stuff that we do in the so-called prayer service, but specifically, specifically... Shwun that's right. Well we ask for our needs. And that seems like the least connecting, the least intimate, the least how does that make sense? So one of the explanations in Hasidus is a, is a very simple thing. God is absolute, right? God is the only thing that's real. So, in reality, is anything lacking in your life? If God is absolute, and God is the only thing that's real, then the reality is that nothing is lacking, right? Now, is your actual experience of life reflect that? No, because we feel lacking, right? So if, if, if we were really connected to God, would our experience of life be lacking in any way? Which either means one of two things. We wouldn't desire the things we don't have or the things that we desire we would already have. But it couldn't be this state that somehow like my, my, my existence is somehow deficient that shows that like I have a sense of reality that's other than God. My own existence, my own life. And therefore I'm disconnected from Hashem. And so the deeper idea in Hasidus is, is what you're trying to do, you're trying to that my sense of reality should be attached, unified to the absolute reality of God. And if that would be the case, the result would be Would I be sick? Would I be lacking in things that I need to function? No. In fact, ultimately, that would result in the state of redemption, the state of Mashiach. Which is why, if you pay attention, half of the Shemonesre's requests are really just for Mashiach in different words. Okay? So, going back, I'm not saying we're all walking around completely unaware of God. But that awareness of God is not the same thing as analogous like seeing the table. You see the table as the table is. If, you were, if God were to be apparent as he is and you were to perceive that, reality would just be like a totally different thing. We wouldn't have this notion of lacking. We wouldn't have this notion of deficiency. We would certainly have an evil inclination. That would like go away completely. It would be very different. Okay. So now why is it that we don't have this, oh, this why is it that we don't see God, so to speak? What's the answer?
0: We aren't really connected with...
1: Well, if you don't see a table, what are possible reasons you don't see a table?
0: You're finite to only seeing things that you believe are there because they're visible.
1: Okay, so I'm going to go back to the table. You can only see a table if you're going to look at it, right? If you're not looking at God. Then you won't see him even if he's right there. Okay, but what else? If you're looking at the table but there's something blocking between you and the table? Okay, that's a second problem. What if your vision is really bad? Okay, so I can think of three reasons why we don't see God. One, we're not looking. Two, the things that are blocking. Three, our capacity to perceive is compromised, right? But what if all those things were not the case? Does that necessarily mean you would see God? Because then there's this other question, and this is the question that the mystics are interested in. Is God visible? (laughs) imagine you're the greatest tzaddik and you're looking for God and your sensitivity to God is is 100%, right? And there's nothing blocking between you and God. You could still be like the person gazing at the table in the dark room and see nothing because the table is not visible. Right? And so you would want there to be some light, right? Something to make the thing you're trying to see visible, right? And so we speak about God's light, we're referring to the fact that God has become visible. But that's not the same thing as you seeing Him, because there's all these other things that might get in the way. Does this make sense? Okay. So now. God is everywhere. Is everywhere, is God visible everywhere? No. no. Okay. If you are in a room and the lights are on and you look at the table, you can see the table, right? So in that sense, I'll say the table exists in two places. It exists out there in the room and it also exists in your vision. Now, does I mean, do I mean that the table actually physically exists in two different places? Do You understand what I mean to say the table exists in your vision? So there's the table, it's visible, and you are seeing it. And as much as you are seeing it, the table as it is, is also exists in some sense in your vision. Okay, so in what sense do we say that Hashem is in Chachmah? Do we say that Chachmah is like a cup and Hashem is like the coffee? No, well, that's silly, right? What do we mean? That Hashem is where was what? Hashem is visible and Chachma sees Hashem. That's what we mean when we say Hashem is in Chachma. Okay. Now, could we spend a lot more time fleshing this out? We could. But the goal here, again, was to make this, this clear and, and mature and rigorous. So I'm going to go over all the points again more quickly. And, I, and if anyone has outstanding questions on it, then we should stop and clarify them. But if, if it is clear, then we should move on and actually learn the chapter. Okay. So number one, Hashem is not, a, is not an entity that's in a place. Hashem's existence is absolute. But just like any entity could be... Revealed or not revealed, visible or not visible, right? And that's the idea of light. The idea of light is that which makes something visible, that which makes something apparent. So too, the light of Hashem is what makes Hashem visible. But you're, but you're, but just because something is visible doesn't mean that you see it. In order to see it, you need to have the right apparatus to be looking in the right direction, right? Not to have anything block and to have to function, and so. The light of Hashem means that Hashem is visible and Chachma is somehow perfectly situated to, so to speak, see Hashem. Whatever Chachma is and whatever the reason that is. And so here's the rule, wherever the, the Chachma, and because Hashem is everywhere, the Chachma is always seeing Hashem. And just like when you see something, it is not just exist out in the world, but somehow it somehow, in some sense, it exists in your visual experience, so too, Ha- Hashem exists in Chachma, in that sense. And just like when you see something, you're seeing something as it is, so too Hashem exists in Chachma as He is.
0: Right?
1: Are there questions on this? And they fine if there are, I don't want to rush, but I also, if there aren't, then we'll move on, so, yeah. I don't get the part
0: the Chachma, like seeing Hashem, what does
1: that mean? What don't you get? Because I didn't say what it means the Chachmasis Hashem. I just said it's analogous to what does it mean
0: that through
1: like, I, uh, well let's work the other way around. Okay? Let's work the other way around. What does it mean that you what does it mean that you see anything? Just physically. What does it mean that you see something?
0: Through your
1: eyes. I'm not I'm not asking you how. I'm asking you what it means. This is I think this might be confusing you. The how is irrelevant. Right? The fact that there's light and it has wavelengths and it gets and it goes through through the through the lens in your eye, which then focuses on like like none of that's relevant. Okay. What does it mean that you that you, you see something?
0: Like processing
1: it here. No. That's not what it means. There's a lot of ways to process that. In fact, one of the ways you process that things are there is that you've learned this concept called object permanence. And when you stop looking at it, you still have processed that it's there. In fact, most of reality is like that because you're very small section of reality you're actually seeing it at any given point in time, right? That's why when you get up, you walk that way to get out the door because of that notion of object permanence. So like, mm-hmm. processing things are there has very little to do with vision. That's also how blind people function. So again, what does it, what does it mean that you're seeing something? Well, first off, it it means that it's apparent, it's visible. Because if it's not visible, you couldn't see it. And it's being visible is not the same thing as it being there. But then, okay, it's visible. Now what? It means you experience it as it is. If it's big, you experience its bigness. If it's blue, you experience its blueness, right? That's it. And so it is existing both itself out there and also in some sense in your awareness, now, if you were to think about, God forbid, being blind, right? And there's something in front of you, you could be aware of it in all sorts of ways and be informed about it in all sorts of ways, right? But if it's just being there and it's just visible, you're just, that you can't take in. It has to make a noise. You have to bump into it. You have to interact with it for you to be informed about it. And then you can apply concepts to that and process it. That's, none of that's what it means to see something. Make sense? So in Chachma... There is a sense of HaShem as HaShem truly is. Does Chachma have the ability to see HaShem because HaShem made
0: Himself visible?
1: That would have to be the case because if HaShem did not make Himself visible, it doesn't matter how good Chachma is at seeing, just like you in a dark room, you can't see what's in front of you. So it's important to understand that there's two elements. There's Chachma's ability to see and the fact that HaShem is visible. Now, Hashem is always makes Himself visible to Chachmah. Why
0: is that? Like, I guess we we'll What does that mean in the rest, like, in the rest of the... It, go back like, We're okay. going to get
1: to all of that. We're going to get to all of that. The only thing I just wanted to be clear is that we shouldn't have think of Hashem as like... Like, I'll give you an example. It's like a bad analogy. Imagine Hashem is like a fire. And imagine you have this like little fireplace, and you have the fire, and you get a little bit of fire. You put the fire in the fireplace. fire, like, and so the fireplace is like the chachman. Hashem is like, like, it's very romantic, it's very nice. It's just like that's not Hashem is not a thing that goes around and enters things, and it's just, it's, it's, it's it's silly to think of Hashem that way. I think it's very important because like. Again, if you just want to speak poetically and you know, touch your soul and feel inspired, then you can use whatever metaphors you want. But if you want to use a metaphor or an analogy in order to actually understand what you're talking about, you need to make sure that what you're talking about it actually reflects the truth. Hashem is not a thing that gets put inside other things. But just like a thing can or cannot be apparent, and what's apparent, it can be perceived... And perceiving Can be perceived as is Right That's what vision is So Chachma perceives Hashem As Hashem is And in that sense Hashem is in Chachma Good? Okay Alright Intern Back inside So What would that mean? We would say that There is some part of all of our souls Which what? What is that part? That part sees Hashem. Somewhere deep inside of me, there's a part of me which sees Hashem. And that part is called the Chachma of my godly soul. Okay. In turn, the soul's faculty of Chachma, you see why I'm not translating it as wisdom? it would be, be weird to call this wisdom Together with the light of the ancient of blessed be he that is vested in it Spreads throughout the entire Soul animating it From head to foot so to speak As is written Chachma gives life to those who have it Okay So What is the relationship Between the Chachma Of my soul and the rest of my soul or your soul, or any Jew's soul. There's one part of the soul which is, so to speak, seeing Hashem. That part is called the Chachmah. But that's not the whole soul. What is the relationship of the Chachmah to the rest of the soul? It spreads
0: throughout.
1: It spreads throughout it. And what is the effect of that spreading out on the soul? It enlivens it, it animates it. Okay. So, how many things do we need to explain now? Two. two. What are the two things? Spreading out. Spreading out throughout the soul and animating through the soul. We actually need to explain more. We need to explain what the soul is other than the Chachma, right? Right? There's the rest of the soul.
0: <laughs>
1: right? And I would like you to notice that it says that it spreads out from where to where? Head to foot. So is there a hierarchy within the rest of the soul? There's a head and there's a foot.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's at least how many levels of the soul do we have?
0: Two. Other than? More.
1: Other than what? Because the Chachma spreads from the head to the foot. So there's actually
0: Three. there's the
1: Chachma mm-hmm. spreading to the head, spreading to the foot. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Now,
1: now, for those of you who are lacking Kabbalistic knowledge, I will tell you that anytime you have head and foot, you always have to have because you have a head, and the Hebrew word regel can go all the way up to the legs. So this is your head, and you're, you get your legs to stand, start basically at the top of your thighs, but there is something in between, right? Mm-hmm. What do you call that thing in between? Okay. So From here to here. Your body. your body. So there's also called the goof, the body. So actually, although he doesn't mention it, but it's implied that there's actually how many levels of the soul? Four levels of the soul. There's the Chochmah, which is the part that sees Hashem. And then there's the head of the soul, the body of the soul, and the foot of the soul. And what does the Chochmah do to the rest of the soul? It spreads out through those other parts, and the effect it has on those other parts is it enlivens it, it animates it. Okay? So, we have a lot to explain. What is the rest of the soul? Why is it divided into three? What's the hierarchy? What does it mean the Chachma radiates throughout the rest of the soul? What does it mean it enlivens the rest of the soul? Yeah? Okay. Okay. Now. There are... Remember we spoke about before about the different levels of the soul? And I gave them technical names. One was called the Nefesh. That was the lowest level. One is called the Ruach. That's the middle level. And then one is called Neshama. That's the highest level, yes? Mm -hmm. So what would be the head of the soul? That would be called the Neshama. Neshama. What would the body of the soul be? The Ruach. ruach. And what would the foot of the soul be? The Nefesh. So which level is the Chochmah? None of those, right? So what do you call it? So there's an expression in the Zohar, and it's very important that you know this expression. It's going to make everything a lot clearer. The Zohar says that there are four levels of the soul. There's the Nefesh, that's the lowest level. There's the Ruach, that's the middle level. There's the Neshama, there's the highest level. And what's after that? There's the neshama of the neshama, the soul of the soul. Just like your body needs a soul to enliven it, the soul needs a soul to enliven it. So what is the relationship between Chachma and the rest of the soul? It's similar to the relationship between a soul and a body. So you have a body and your body is being enlivened by your soul. But your soul is really being enlivened by. Okay. Now here's the here's the thing. I'm going to make this a little bit complicated, and then I'll make it overly simple. Okay. Your body is enlivened by your soul, right? But as we mentioned previously, every Jew has actually two souls. So which soul is enlivening your body? Your nefesh sure. sure It's your animal soul. But your animal soul really is being enlivened by your, body. your godly soul. Okay. Hopefully. It doesn't always work out that way, but hopefully. But your godly soul, actually, right, so the animal soul is clothed. Remember yesterday we spoke about clothed. The animal soul is clothed in the body and the godly soul is clothed in the animal soul. But what what is enlivening, and the godly soul has three different parts, right? Nefesh, Rach, and levels. but what's enlivening the godly soul? The Neshama. The Neshama of the godly soul, also known as the Chachma. So the chachma, and this is what's in my word, we should think of chachma. as if that was just, I'm gonna, that'll come up, that'll become relevant later on, the fact that the animal soul's in there, but we should think of chachma as so categorically different than the rest of the soul, the way we think of a soul is categorically different
0: from the body. So is a chachma like a force?
1: Well, you tell me what you mean by force, then I'll tell you. You can call anything, anything. I, I, someone I knew once asked me, is Hashem like the force from Star Wars?
0: And I said, what? And, and, and,
1: and I said, well, I mean, anything is like anything in certain respects. I said, after all, Hashem is like a potato. And they said, why? And I said, well, a potato nourishes and God nourishes. A potato, the part that nourishes you is hidden. The part about God that really nourishes us is hidden, right? Potato takes on so many forms that are all delicious, right? You can make anything similar to anything. So you have to tell me what you mean. I don't
0: really know how to say so,
1: so we'll leave it. So, yeah. I'm not saying you're wrong, but yeah, but yeah. sometimes we just like... We throw a word for a sense. and we don't like... Uh, okay. Um. So, what is the nefesh, what is the ruach, and what is the neshama of the godly soul? Right. So I want to talk about that first. And then we're going to talk about how the chachma... The nefesh, ruach, and neshama are very, very well defined. Now... Uh, I want to be clear, not everyone's nefesh, roch and neshama are the same, but I'm going to talk about them as if they're all the same for simplicity's sake, okay? And I'm going to um, give English words that are the word to measure how successful and or the level of the soul. Okay, so if you want to measure your nefesh, what should you look at? And what you should look at is how religious you are. How what? Religious you are. The more religious you are,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that's because your nefesh is functioning on a higher level. Or your nefesh is being more successful, one of the two, right? If you're not so religious, then what does that mean about your nefesh? <coughs> it's a, What? It's kind of huge. Yeah. What?
0: Like, nefesh is kind of a malistic
1: soul. Right? No, 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 no. We're talking about the godly, the godly soul's lowest level, the foot of godly soul is called the nephesh. The nefesh is the thing. The nefesh is measured in terms of how religious you are.
0: Do you mean observant? What? When you say religious, you mean observant?
1: I mean many, many things. But I'm using the word religious specifically. I am yeah. Okay. How do you measure the how do you measure your ruach? You measure your Ruach by how central God is in your emotional life. I'm going to give examples for each of these. And how do you measure Neshama? How central Hashem is in your intellectual life. Now, I would like to point out, not everyone has an intellectual life, by the way. So, if you don't have an intellectual life, then, you're ne- then, you're, then your neshama is basically like dormant. <coughs> so, I'm just going to point that out. Not everyone has an intellectual life. I'm serious. By the way, there are people that sometimes don't even have an emotional life. I'm going to give you, want to remember a circumstance where someone doesn't have an emotional life? Okay. Okay. Think about a person in, under extreme circumstances, like um, war or um, like the Jews that are trying to be religious in communist Russia. Right? Emotional life is a luxury you're basically just on the level of trying to get by okay? so you could also be, right? you could also be in a state where you, where you don't have an emotional life too, but we in the rich, developed societies that we have like Don't don't really consider that that really living. But okay, fine. So, let's start with religious. Okay? I'm going to start with a, a simple example. There's something called Shabbos. We spoke about Shabbos yesterday. We're all familiar with Shabbos. Okay. Would you like to see your nefesh? Have a sense of your nefesh. Very simple. Okay? You know that thing where you realize that sunset is coming very, very soon? Like it's exactly seven and a half minutes till shkia, till sunset? And you realize that like there's stuff that needs to get done? And it feels like you have, you're rushing, kind of similar to the feeling like you're rushing to make the plane? Because the plane will take off with or without you, and the sun will set with or without you. And if the sun sets and the hot water thing is not plugged in, then it's just not gonna be plugged in and that's the end of it and there's nothing you can do about it. There's really just, you can't do anything about it. That's your nefesh at work. Yeah, it's not your technically observing mitzvahs. It's, a, it, it's part of your soul, it's part of your life, but it's like, okay? Um, I'll give you an example. That men have. Men have this thing where they have a commandment to recite the Shema every evening and every morning. Now, there's an end deadline for reciting the Shema, which is called the last time for reciting the Shema, or in Hebrew, Seif Zman Kriya Shema. Which is, I think, right now around nine ten-ish. I don't know exactly. Nine oh seven. Nine oh seven. Okay. It's good. I didn't say it at nine ten. Okay. So, yeah.
0: do
1: you know what it's like to be extremely tired? To not feel well? And to realize that it's 9.03 and the last time to recite Shema Shema is 9.07, that's a very intense thing. Right? Or similarly, Tefillin. Tefillin have to be put on every day. Um, One time as a Bachar I was extremely ill. I could not move. I woke up like at two o'clock in like a delirium and like I just rolled, I, I couldn't move. Um, and then I woke up around four something. This was Yerushalayim in the winter. And it slowly dawned on me that the sun is going to be setting in like 10 minutes. And I have never moved so fast. <laughs> I jumped out of my bed. My Negawasser was just sitting there the whole day. I washed Negawasser. I put on the tefillin, took off the tefillin, put on my bed, and I collapsed in bed and woke up the next morning at like, I don't know, 12 o'clock. And I was like with really high fever. But there's a sense inside a Jew which is this stuff has to get done, or this stuff cannot happen. It's sometimes subtle, sometimes strong, sometimes right, and it could be physical mitzvahs, like you know, keeping shabbos swings filling. But it can also be verbal mitzvahs, positive and negative. It could be mental mitzvahs. There's certain things I'm not allowed to think about, certain things I have to think about. But this, and and there's the, there's this this this. That you're you're you you have this sense, and again, I'm describing as if it's all gonna be the same for everybody, it's really not. Avish person's nefesh is different. It's gonna feel different, it's going to look different, it's going to develop differently. But what are all all the, everybody's nefesh has in common is at the end of the day, what does it translate into? This push to live religiously and this resistance. To violate what a religious life is. And, and, if, and, and, and the more that that is something a person experiences in their life, the more their nefesh is coming through and actually manifesting. That's the foot of the soul. That's the lowest level of the soul.
0: So I'm just wondering, is it more the push or the
1: act? Of? It's the push. It's the thing that makes you feel like you have to act. Or that you shouldn't act that you're allowed to think this. You're not allowed to think this. You're allowed to go here. You must not go here. You, you need to go here, whatever it is. Okay? Now, the of the, the Alkarebbe's son gives an analogy. Imagine you've had a dog. And if you have a dog, then you don't have to imagine because you just have to remember having a dog. But those of us who've not had a dog, you have to imagine a dog. And imagine your dog one day, walking down, you're walking the dog, and all of a sudden the dog starts running and jumps into a burning building. What would you conclude about the dog? No.
0: Not the one. Really? No, I'm
1: sorry, but then think about it. Really? The dog is lacking intelligence. That's the problem?
0: I would conclude that it's Okay. No, why would. There's what? something the dog
1: So, right, so you, you might, you, you probably, first thing you do is you look for something interesting in context that would explain why the dog would do that, right? Yeah. Like maybe there was someone screaming and the dog ran in because dogs have a strong sense of of loyalty and things like that, right? But once you discover that there is no, no, the dog just like ran into the fire like it runs to food. Then what would you conclude? Dumb
0: dog.
1: No, you wouldn't, you, you might say dumb, but think about it, it's dumb, the dog is lacking in intelligence. It wasn't smart enough to figure out the fire is dangerous.
0: It didn't didn't
1: have any awareness of danger. And what does that say about the dog? It's not intelligence. Why didn't the, like, like, is this like a big achievement? You know, some dogs develop an awareness of danger and know to be careful of fires. And this dog just never went to school and didn't learn that. Like, that's not what happened. So what was going on? Yeah, there's something went wrong with the dog. I don't know. I mean, you know, if I, there's something wrong with the dog. It's not the dog is not sufficiently like smart or intelligent. That's not the issue, right? There could be a, maybe the dog was suffering from a neurological disease. Maybe the dog has rabies, right? Maybe I don't know, right? There's something, right? What if you have a dog that doesn't eat? It just doesn't eat. You conclude it's not smart enough to understand it needs to eat?
0: Sick.
1: It's sick. Something is wrong, right? Okay, so you have... Your nefesh basically is like a dog, okay? It's not so sophisticated. But you have one. So if you were to see a Jew eating non-kosher food, what would you have to conclude about that Jew in as much as they have a nefesh? It's not so
0: sophisticated.
1: No. if If the nefesh of a Jew is like a dog, Right? If a dog doesn't eat, or a dog jumps into fire, right, there's something clearly wrong with the dog. Mm-hmm. The dog is sick, something is damaged, mm-hmm. something else. So if a, if a Jew is eating non-kosher food, what should their nefesh cause them to feel in relation to eating non-kosher food? Mm-hmm. Like, just mm-hmm. like, it's like, like yeah, it would, be, it would feel like jumping into fire, but you feel like something like, like it's just, it, it, it's so, mm-hmm. it can't. It's, it, it, it's outside its scope of what it is to, to be alive. And so why isn't the, why isn't you able to eat non-kosher food? There's supposed to be something off with their nefesh. Which is why the Zohar says, if you have sinned, it caught, it, it is, it, it, there's something wrong with your nefesh. But specifically, which level of your soul? The nefesh. Yeah. A healthy nefesh? No sinning. Sinning, an indication of? That's right
0: does it mean that everyone in our
1: generation has sick There are levels of this. So there are things that the nef- there are things that are like, like for instance, let's go back to, let's go back to, if the dog were to eat, what's a food that's really bad for dogs?
0: Chocolate. So if
1: the dog were to eat chocolate, we wouldn't- Or grapes. I don't know. But we wouldn't say the dog, something, we, we would say that that dog, right, there's not, it's not the same thing as a dog like not eating or jumping into a fire, right? So if the nefesh becomes sophisticated, now you're, this is a place in which your nefesh is not like a dog. Your nefesh could become more developed. And so if your nefesh is more developed, it can appreciate and sense the, the mitzvah and sin and many other things. But there's a certain kind of baseline, like kosher food, eating matzah on Pesach, you know, that kinds of stuff. There's a certain kind of basic level instinctual, sensitive, every nefesh has, but then if you want to get every little nuance of Judaism, the nefesh actually with it is, is more human needs to develop, but the nefesh has a, has a mind, the nefesh has emotions. The, you know, there's more mature nefesh for that. Okay, so you could have an undeveloped nefesh, you could have a sick nefesh, you could have your nefesh is hidden, but you can measure your nefesh more or less in terms of that religious impulse. Okay, that makes sense? That's called the foot of the godly soul. All right. I heard a story, I heard this story um, from the son of the man who was there. There was, after World War II, many um, Jews were in DP camps, displaced person camps. Mm -hmm. Not all of these camps were like camps, some of them were just like, uh, um, in Europe they have a lot of these like old castles and palaces and villas, and so sometimes they were were requisitioned by by the armies to, to use to house refugees. So sometimes these camps are just like these like large estates and things like that. Um, and a big concentration of Jews was in a refugee camp, uh, a DP camp in Pucking, Germany. And this is where actually a lot of Chabad Hasidim from Soviet Russia went to. They smuggled themselves out of Soviet Russia under fake Polish passports in 1947. That's actually why most of the old Lubavitch families exist, um, because of that because most Lubavitch lived in Soviet Russia, and they, they like, there was a brief period where you could get out on a Polish passport, and they ended up in fucking Germany. And so the person who, who told the story, he was um, a young boy, 10, 11, 12, something like that, and he wakes up one morning, and he goes to the communal area in this like, chateau, wherever it is, and like, every family gets like a room or whatever, and there's this communal area, and he sees an older man, and the older man is sobbing. He's sobbing. Now, it's 1947, maybe already in 48, and, you know, people don't know what they're doing with their lives, they don't have... I mean, there's enough reasons for people to be crying, right? You could find found out that, like, his, he thought his family member survived, and never... Died. So he goes over to him and asks him, like, why is he crying? What happened? And through his sobs, he says that he is so weak that he overslept and he missed the last time for reading the Shema.
0: Now,
1: how central does Hashem have to be in your emotional life when that's the thing that brings you to tears? All of you have cried before over things, right? Yeah. That, you, that you, you missed the opportunity to do a daily mitzvah? Like, <laughs> That's not being religious. That's like a whole different level of reality, right? You see what I'm saying? And Here's the uncomfortable rule. I think we're all familiar with the idea that emotions th- th- There is a kind of a trade-off thing like if, if something is more central in your emotional life, then things which are Not compatible with that become more peripheral in your emotional life If you're crying because you missed the opportunity to admit to so like you're like genuinely Feel the loss of that moment of being able to connect to Hashem that it touches you and brings you to tears You're probably not gonna be crying because you missed your flight and your vacation got canceled, right? It's not the same person. So that's, that's the Ruach coming through. That's the body of the soul. Can
0: it also be expressed, though, in a happy emotion? Yes,
1: I was using that because it's the simplest example. I was going to go give, now give an example. There was the great Tzadik of Rabbi, Rabbi Levi Yitzhak of Berdichev, who was, who was known to be extremely emotional. Um, so... Um, you ever, and maybe this happens to you now, but I'm sure you remember being a kid and there was something that you were looking forward to happening the next day and you couldn't sleep. Yeah, it's pretty central. Like you're going to trip whatever it is. is. gonna. So the first night of Sukkot, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Redditchev couldn't sleep. I don't know if this happened every, day, every year, but one year he just couldn't sleep. Do you know why he couldn't sleep? Because in the morning he was going to do the mitzvah of the of Edesser, And he was so excited. He just could not sleep. And as soon as it was time to do the mitzvah, he rushed over to his little, rushed over to his esrog, and he grabbed it and he shook it with fervor and with joy. And Anyway, after he finished, it took a while because um, he was very into it, um, he realized that his hand was bleeding because he'd forgotten that his esrog was in a glass case. And he had just shoved his hand right through the glass case to the esrog, and he completely unaware because he was so enthralled with this moment of connection to Hashem. So, that's the opposite extreme. Is
0: this, is this like strictly combined, confined in a Jewish aspect? Yes. What if, so, regardless if you're just having to be um, an excited, happy emotion.
1: No, no you can be excited, happy emotion. That's not, the, not that, that, the, that's not the Ruach, because we're talking about the godly soul. Yeah. That's right. So, the godly soul is only going to be in relationship to Hashem in Judaism. No, children have something else going on.
0: <laughs>
1: okay. We'll leave it at that. There's a different dynamic happening with children. Okay. Um, so like that's a whole different thing, right? You. you okay. Um. What would it mean, neshama? Well, first off, you'd have to have an intellectual life, right? Mm-hmm. So let's start there. What is an intellectual life?
0: Awareness.
1: No. no, I want to be clear, not everyone has an intellectual life. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, it's just, it, it is. No. Most people See understanding as instrumental. If you don't understand things, then what's going to happen? You're not going to be able to do stuff. Someone who has an intellectual life sees doing things as an annoying disturbance <laughs> that takes you away from understanding things. Okay? I'll give you a simple example. Okay? Um, there are people who go into theoretical physics. Why would you ever go into theoretical physics as a profession? It's not for the fame, it's not for the glory, it is not for the, you know, the, the money. You like it. You like it. And what are you going to do with it when you understand this, this new aspect of theoretical physics? Then what? You're going to keep doing it. Yeah. So you just like, like that's called having an intellectual life. Mm. And if you don't have to have a day job because someone will pay you to do that, then that's great. So you remember in school, like, there's always like, one or two kids in a class who just like, they want to learn more about this subject and they're so happy they're teaching it in school. And like, everyone else is like, on back, like, why do we need to be learning this? And like, maybe they know the reason, maybe they don't, but like, if we didn't learn, it would be okay. That's called having an intellectual life. Which, by the way, I want to be clear, it has nothing to do with how smart you are per se. There are people who are very, very smart and they just not, don't have an intellectual life. Like, if they, they can be very, very brilliant at something but they need, need that information, but otherwise like, they're much happier just like living, you know, practically, socially and, you know. Does that make sense? Okay, so now. If your neshama is coming through. Effectively, vibrantly, then what would that mean?
0: You like what you're
1: doing? You no, know, you have an intellectual life. We're talking about that level, right? The ru- nefesh is in You're interested in knowing about Hashem. Why? Because that's the only thing interesting and makes life worth living. So if someone starts telling you about this really cool, you know, new thing with, with, I don't know, with AI, your only interest is like, how does this help me have a better understanding of Hashem? Or Hashem's Torah, one of the two. But like, that's it. Otherwise, it's boring in and of itself. So the person who has a vibrant intellectual life, but it's all centered around... So what's the head of the soul? The head of the soul is the, 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 the God, the part, of the, the part of the Godly soul that seeks to use intellectual life as the means to connect us to Hashem. What is the body of the soul, the Ruach of the soul? It's the thing that seeks to use emotional life as the means to connect us to Hashem. And what is the Nephesh? The nefesh is the part of the soul that seeks to use our actual, like, lives that we're living as the means to connect us to Hashem. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. Okay, now there's one tiny little rule. As a general rule, these things are like a pyramid. So you can't have one, the higher level, outgrow the lower levels. That's the general rule. Okay. That's Four the... That, what? Which way are you... So you, your your ruach, as a general rule, is not going to be greater than your nefesh. So you're never going to have Hashem be more central in your in your emotional life than 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 your than your actual religiosity. Mm-hmm. Not that it can't ever happen, but it's a general rule that won't happen. And if it does happen, it's necessarily unstable and will not last. Sorry, okay.
0: okay. Will a tzaddik be stronger in his neshama Then than like in the No, ruach, no, no, no.
1: The rule applies to tzaddik also. In fact, if you would like to make yourself a tzaddik, that's how you do it. Right. You first maximize your nefesh and then you maximize your Ruach and if you've done that then you would technically be a tzaddik at that point.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: At that point, you would also not have an evil inclination or any desire for anything ungodly because you've maximized the centrality of God in your emotional life and we've those of us who've learned a little Tanya are aware that becoming a tzaddik is not an easy thing to do, right? Okay, fine. So
0: how do you- I feel connected but don't
1: necessarily act. We will get to that. There's more than just these three. Mm. There's more of the stuff going on. But, so, what do those three things have in common? Hashem. What? Hashem. Hashem. As, and not just Hashem, but Hashem's, where is Hashem's role in each of those?
0: Central.
1: He's central, right? So, right, the neshama level is intellectual and the ruach level is emotional and the nefesh level is, I don't know, you want to call it practical, you want to call it embodied, whatever it is, right? But what, but what makes them thrive is the centrality of Hashem, yeah? Where do they get the centrality of Hashem from? From Chachma. What would happen if Chachmah would not radiate and um, what's the word he uses here? Spread into the nefesh, or into the ruach, or into the neshama? The nefesh would still be a very practical, you know, like you know, still have a sense. This has to get done. This doesn't have to get done. The ruach would still be very emotional, right? The neshama would still be very intellectual. But what would be missing? The absolute centrality of is that the no, that's not the nefesh Bahamas. But that does make them vulnerable to the animal soul. After all, to use an example of a class. Let's say you have a teacher who's teaching you something, and that teacher is interested in teaching you Torah. Now, on a deeper level, they're interested in teaching you Torah because they want to connect you to Hashem. But there's many ways to connect Hashem. They're teaching Torah, they're interested in the ideas and the teaching, right? If the centrality of Hashem... Goes out of the picture, right? The class can very easily go from being a class about Torah to just a class about ideas that are adjacent to Torah to something else, to, right? In other words, what makes the godly soul susceptible to the animal soul is that the Chachma is somehow not fully present. We're going to talk more about this. I'm, I'm speaking very vague about this right now. So, the Chachma, right, what, what is What does the Chachma do? The chachma doesn't make you more religious. And the chachma doesn't make you love Hashem more. And the chachma doesn't make you more curious about the truth of Hashem's being. The chachma does what? The chachma just makes Hashem the center. And when that reaches the other levels, it means the center of my actual physical life is my religiosity. The center of my emotional life is Hashem. My love of Hashem, my fear of Hashem, my awe of Hashem, my... My, my, my gratitude, whatever it is, right? And the center of my intellectual life, in as much as I have one, is Hashem. And that's what, what it means to enliven something. doesn't mean just to make it work. It's very important. In Hasidus we differentiate between enlivening and empowering. What's the difference? If you're not empowered, you can't do stuff. Okay. So if you don't eat, what's gonna happen? You're not going to able to function very well, right? Enlivening is a little bit deeper. Enlivening means that you're thriving, that you're flourishing, that you're coming into yourself. You're using that word I mentioned yesterday. You're being authentic. Mm See? Okay. No, but really, to be enlivened means to be in touch with the deeper, truer, more authentic version of what you're really all about. Okay? I'll give you an example. When the, we say the soul enlivens the body, I apologize in advance, it's a little bit disturbing. Um, what is the difference between your body and the stuff that goes in a cholent?
0: One living. Well, we could fix that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: the difference is the thing that's in the cholent Never housed and never was meant to contain something that was in the divine image, was it? That's the difference. What does it mean that your soul enlivens a body? It means it makes it something that embodies the divine image. And that's what the body is meant for. Now, if you're using your body in such a way that is not in, in alignment with the divine image, your body might still be functional and empowered, but is it really being enlivened? No. Okay. This makes sense. Okay. When you do something, and it, 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 with, 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 with what's called in Yiddish, labor with, 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 with life, with, 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 with vitality, what it means is this thing is somehow part of you being what you're really supposed to be, being in touch with the deeper truth of what you're all about. Okay. Now. So that means this. Chachma, which is the sense of what Hashem truly is, it doesn't just stay in the part of the nefesh called, the part of the soul called Chachma. It somehow reaches the other parts. And what does it do? It informs them. It imbues with them in a sense that the center of everything, the center of your part is really not your part. The center of your part is Hashem. It comes to the Ruach, let's say, and it, and it gives a sense... That the center of your emotional life Is not your emotional life The center of your emotional life Is the Truth of Hashem As He really is And so it's the soul That enlivens the soul Does this make sense? Okay So what do you have? You have like this You have we go through all the levels You have God And God has light, meaning God is a parent. And because he's a parent, he can be seen. What's the part that sees him? is called the Chachmah. And that sense of Hashem in the Chachma is transmitted, radiates, it extends into the other parts of the soul which have defined functions, practical, emotional, and intellectual, and imbues with them in a sense that really the core of my life, the core of my emotional life, the core of my intellectual life is not my life. But is the absoluteness and the truth of Hashem, and then that hopefully is clothed in through the through the animal soul into the body and manifest in how we live our lives, right? That would be wonderful. Life doesn't work that way. <laughs> stuff, something stuff seems to have, go wrong somewhere along the way.
0: You said the sense of Hashem in the chachamet. Just like when I see something,
1: right? Yeah. yeah. What, I, I didn't I didn't I didn't mean it in a different yeah. yeah, yeah. What goes wrong along the way? We're gonna learn about it. What? Something, something We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about it. There's there's actually several things that can go wrong in different ways, and they have related but different solutions, and that's why we, this entire approach to getting in touch with God mm-hmm. ends up being a total of, what is it, 18 through 25. It's a lot of chapters. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did
0: it ever work like this, like when your kids was working? Oh, there are
1: people that works like this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But
0: not by nature.
1: There are even people that works like this basically by default. Would you like names? That there 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 are people that Hashem is visible and the Chachma sees and the Chachma radiates into the Nishama? And then the, and the Ruach and the Nefesh, and they come, and there it manifests clearly through the animal soul into the physical life of the person. do we call those people?
0: The Rebbe? We
1: call, in the Chabad language, we call that person a Rebbe. Um, in other circles, they might call that person a Tzadik although in Tanya Tzadik is actually a lower level, because you could be a Tzadik, just with the Ruach manifesting. Um, but yeah, that would be like someone like Moshe, Bein, Rebbe, Shim, Chai, the Baal Shem the uh, uh, Rizush of Anapoli. Like, th- these are not like normal people. Um, you know, the, the, the Rebbe um, wrote in a letter that when he was, before he started going to Cheder, which means that, you know, we're talking like three-ish or something like that, the Rebbe was fantasizing and dreaming about what the future redemption would be like. And specifically how the future rege- redemption would retrospectively make the experience of exile seem worthwhile and a good thing. Now, I have kids. That's <laughs> not what they... Like, what's going on in the mental world is not that.
0: Right, Michelle? Michelle comes, is like?
1: No. When kids think about Mashiach, they think about candy growing on trees. And they have to be told that. It's not the same thing. It's just not. Um, you know, it's it's... And this is what this is reflected in the idea that, that it says that when, when Moshe was born the house was filled with light. That's that's what that means. Yeah. It's a very uh, it's a very, very rare thing. It's extremely rare thing. Now, I wanna be clear. Is such a person necessarily smarter than other people? No. Is such a person necessarily have a richer emotional life than other people? is as a, as a, as a, as a, such a person is necessarily more physically capable than other people? Not necessarily right? Doesn't necessarily, right? It doesn't follow. What follows is that all of those different levels of life are functioning clearly and smoothly with a sense that the only thing that matters, the only thing that's real, the only thing that's true is the truth of Hashem as He really is. And that's how they experience everything. Their practical life, their emotional life, their intellectual life. Now it may be that they're smarter than other people. That's that, that, that that's not the point. And yeah, those people are very, very rare.
0: I have a question. Kind of confusing, but... By
1: the way, if you would like to know, that's what we mean when we say that someone gets a soul from the world of Atsilos. That's what we mean. Are they ever women? Yeah. The Altab had a daughter named Freda, who was like that. Um, yeah. Um the all the four mothers. Um who else would I know off the top of how my do you head? know like who
0: says
1: well I mean the, the, the four mothers we know because that's like in Kabbalah right um, and then in terms of the Alteba's daughter um, the <coughs> i try trying to remember if it was the Alteba said it about her or the Mithraba her brother said it I mean you want to know how she died put it to you this way it's how she died the Altar used to say "My mom's Discourse is just for her
0: yeah.
1: Even his success, the Mithra was not allowed and It was just for her um, The Mithra used to hide in the closet to try and hear them <laughs> <laughs> What? Um,
0: How did she die? So the
1: way she died was when the Altar Passed away And she heard the Altar passed away She I, I don't remember all the specifics But like She got sick and like she just like her body just like stopped functioning, cool. and then the last thing she said, um, she said in Yiddish, but I don't remember the exact wording. But she said something to the fact, "Father, I'm coming," and she was gone. <laughs> like she, like like she and her father were like there's very deep soul. like If he's not in the world, I'm not here also. I'm like then she left. Like like and 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 um, you know she just like she's like that was her life. Her, her, the, the truth of God that she and the Altar shared was it, and that was like she's not. There's nothing left for her. and I don't have her husband. We don't know her husband's name. I mean, maybe there are historians who know her husband's name, but. She has kids? I think so. But she, she was like. Totally different. Um, You're like, how do you. Only Chabad
0: believes that about their reign.
1: Does everyone believe in that that's what they're. Um, everybody believes if you go far enough back in the Hasidic world. The question is when they stop believing it. What
0: do you mean? You're saying, like,.
1: Like, if you were to go to another chassidic group, and you were to, like, pick a chassidic group.
0: Square.
1: Square. So if you were to ask about... So square is a branch off of Chernobyl. <laughs> so if you were to ask about Abnacham um, Chernobyl, who was a student of the Balshemtov and a student of the Magid, they would say, absolutely. Motel Chernobyl, his son who succeeded him, absolutely. You know, the, at what point did it... I mean, the current... The, the, you know, the, the current square Rebbe, like... I don't know if they believe that. Like at some point people just like, okay, he's the son or the grandson of this very like any maybe they believe that he has Rukha Kodesh and he has special brachas and he's very holy, he's very pious. But they don't necessarily believe. But if you go all the way that all of the Hasidic Rebbes became that because people believe that about them. So why does
0: Chabad specifically still believe that and most people don't?
1: What do you think is a reasonable answer to that? If most people if most people are let's say within the realm of reasonability and how they think about things, right? If most people don't believe something about something that's within their worldview, I'm not talking about people do not—they're skeptical of the whole day of soul, right? Then why would you? Why would people be skeptical about? Say yeah, it's about this, and other people wouldn't because maybe it's just less plausible. I have neighbors. I, I live in a building where I live in an area where there's a lot, a lot of other chassidim, so just and you know what. <laughs> they often have this attitude like their is like, you know, in a league together with like the Baal Shabtov and Roshav Anapoli and like their Rebbe's are whatever nice holy Jews that they listen to. And it's also, by the way, I want to point out like believing somebody's on this is not the same thing as, as, as being their chasa. Those are two different things. But yeah, it's, it's, you know, people live a certain way. I give you names of, I, I, I don't like playing around with the levels of souls. I don't know these things, but there was, I can give you names of other people like that are not all the way far back. I mean, the Aaron Belzer, who passed away, what, the 50s, the 60s? Um, he was. He was not of this world. Um, the Ribnitz Rebbe. I think he's buried in Muncie, New York. I mean. The Rebbe was a moyo. And he didn't know how to do brismila. And it was not uncommon for the baby just to keep bleeding and bleeding and bleeding and then he would just look at the baby and like, you know, do whatever Tadic does and the baby would stop bleeding. Like, it was like not normal. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll,
0: I'll
1: give you a The Rebbe was, was it was in Soviet Russia and a woman came to him with a chicken and she said, I want you to shech the chicken so I have kosher food. And the Reb Rebbe had just come back from the mikvah and he used to title the mikvah a lot. The mikvah was the icy cold river. There was no, like, there were no mikvahs, much less men's mikvahs in Soviet Russia. And... Um, and he said, um, he said, I'm going to Davin. After Davin, he will shech the chicken. And she said, Rabbi, you want me to eat kosher? Shech the chicken. You don't shech the chicken? I'll kill it myself. Mm. So he shech the chicken. And then he told, uh, he had a, someone who like, helped him out. He said, let's go back to the river, we'll go to mikveh. Mm. He said, well, why do you have to go to mikveh? He says, because it says that when you get angry, there's klepa." And the way to get rid of the khlifa is to immerse yourself, I don't know, whatever it is, like, you know, 60, 70 times in the mikvah. Now, I can tell you what he felt we would not call anger. I don't know what it was. It was, But but on the level of you're talking there, it's like the, the spiritual source of... Because, like, if you and I get angry, we need to, like, do other stuff than go to a mikvah or, like, we need to, like, really work on ourselves. Whatever he... I don't know, that slight whatever sense of like tension, whatever it was, felt he felt that separating, that's blocking the sense of the kachmah of his soul and the ritual of 60, 70 of like, you're not. Talk- and there are people, like people, if you, if, you, if you interact with people and you see people like that, you know, and it's part of your worldview, it's more or less plausible. That person's just a different... So a tzaddik is someone who there's no space in their emotional life for anything other than Hashem relative to that it's a pretty low level I mean for us it's a pretty amazing thing because you know like you know I care whether or not my coffee tastes good (laughs) and you know if there's no coffee I get annoyed (laughs) so there's, there's there's a range of what a Jew can experience and um the more profound, the fewer people. I don't like playing this game of which. I, I, if, if people that really know what they're talking about say stuff, then I don't mind repeating it. Like, So saying that Moshe Be'nu, the, the Baal Shemtos, where their souls come from, generally is, is written in holy books. But you want to start asking me, like, where did Aaron Bell's soul come from? I have no idea. I don't know what level it is, but I can definitely tell you it's, it's, it's not comparable to. Like, I mean, he, he lived a life where, I mean, that was completely transcendent of. of, of things that we're... And, and he's not the only person. There are people like this. In each group, when did that stop? You know, And sometimes there's arguments. Sometimes what you find is there's a generation where there were arguments. <coughs> is he like his father? He's not like his father. <laughs> right. There's a Hasidic group named the Rachmus Rivka. They're also related to, to Square. They're Turskis. They're, they're All the Turskis are in the same family. And the Rachmus Rivka's brother... It's a Lubavitcher. Is a Lubavitcher chassid. His father, his father was a Rebbe. And I think he was the second brother. I don't remember. His, and um, he discovered the Rebbe. <laughs> and he's like, I'd rather be the chassid of this Rebbe than the son of this Rebbe. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he uh, actually created tension between the two groups. The, his father was, was very disappointed. I and mean, he, like, he, he left he left Rivka. And he's a Lubavitcher now. He teaches in Lubavitcher yeshivas. I mean, he still wears the same thing. He was the shrine and everything. But like, I, married off a grandchild. I was in Crown and I'm happy to see the chuppah. Grandkids were all about it. Or it was like I. He said I found this. I said I want. I want this. People feel things. They experience things. And playing like, how do you know what's the arguing? It doesn't, doesn't help. But but if it's as part of a person's will, and their sense of it, like you know, it seems more or less reasonable. And you know, that's how the whole Hasidic Rebbe thing got started. Anyway, the Belshemtov wandered around, and people were like this is different. He's living in a different place and even great, great people. And then he was able to help them become like him. Some of them, and then, you know, speak these. All right. Tomorrow is questions and answers.